Father, thank you that that is true. Your grace is enough for us. That's why we gather here tonight in hopeful confidence that you hear us, that you see us, and that through Christ you are pleased with what you see. Speak now your word by the power of your spirit through my very imperfect and feeble lips to those that you've, you've gathered to hear it, and I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take a seat, and how good is it that Matt's hands sound like they're back to normal, basically, and how good is it that Kat is returning to us this weekend, a newly married woman? Yes, that's right, she got married to Will last uh, Saturday, and I had the pleasure of officiating that wedding, so... Uh, good news all the way around on our stage uh, tonight. Uh, so in the last few weeks, if you've heard the messages here, whether you've been, uh, you had to watch them online or whether you were here in person, uh, we've been looking at a moment in which Jesus is pretty darn confrontational with the religious leadership of Jerusalem. Um, earlier in the last chapter that we had gone over a few weeks ago, he compares the religious leadership of, of Israel uh, or of Jerusalem to basically being like a son that promises his father that he'll go out and do everything his father wants him to, but then, of course, never does it. Worse than that, the following week, Jesus compares the, the religious establishment and the leadership in Jerusalem to a group of wicked tenants that have been hired to oversee the master's vineyard only to uh, persecute the servants of the master when those servants came to gather fruit from the vineyard for the master. Indeed, persecuting them so much that not only did they hurt them, but they would indeed kill them, even killing the master's son. And in this week's passage, found in Matthew 22, we come across another one of Jesus' parables in which he is harshly confronting them, and this time I think harshly confronting them and showing in the process why it is they have rejected God. What has motivated them to uh, constantly rebel? So with that by way of introduction, let's listen to the passage, Matthew 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited for the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. 
End of reading. So here is the question that I've got swimming through my, my brain as I come to this text. Why is it that some people do not want to know or be known by God? I mean, I know that's a, that's a loaded question, and there could be many answers to the question. I mean, it could be that some people have just convinced themselves that there is no God. It could be that there's a good number of people that are just not sure who that God is. They're sort of more on the agnostic front. Could be they believe in a whole different deity or multiple deities. That's always a possibility. Or it could be, as I've found many times in my conversations with people, they generally have a pretty big set of misconceptions about God. Whoever they think God is doesn't match up with the God that certainly we present in the scriptures. But what I'm talking about here is something pretty specific. I'm talking about people. I'm asking the question about people that would come to see that the God of the Bible is God. They would even acknowledge that. They would say, I probably believe in that God. And they might even go so far as to say, and I probably believe that Jesus is the Son of God who, yeah, even rose from the dead. I'm asking a question about those people that would say that and yet still not want to have anything to do with God. I've had this experience. I've had this experience of uh, being around people that will acknowledge the truths about God and yet reject Him. I remember one time I was at a, a banquet years ago and some kids that I used to minister to as a youth leader uh, had grown up by then, they were you know, young adults, and they were seated at the table with me. They just happened to be seated there. And so we struck up conversation in a very quick order. They told me that they were no longer Christians and that they basically did not believe the faith anymore. And so I said, well, you know, you got me. I'm here with you for 45 minutes. I'm happy to just take whatever objections you got, and let's sort through them. Let's see what we got. And so they did. And I love that stuff. I mean, so they brought up all sorts of problems and questions and objections. And I did the best I could with what I had to try and give them some decent answers to those objections and questions. And by the end of it, much to my delight, the two guys I was sitting with said, I got to be honest, I don't have any more objections. It seems like the evidence is there to suggest that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And if he really did rise from the dead, then he probably is who he said he is. Well, I mean, you get in a mission like that, you're like, all right, let's pray. And so that's what I said. I said, what, do you guys want to pray? And they said, no, no, I'm, I'm good. I said, well, I mean, you just said that you think Jesus really did rise from the dead, though. You said that you think what we talk, what we say about him is true. And they said, yeah, 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 I mean, I, I think it probably is, but I'm not ready for that right now. I don't want that in my life. In today's parable, Jesus tells the story of people who are offered an abundant feast at a king's table. A feast filled with the absolute richest delicacies known to man at the time that would last for days feast that was free for the taking for them. And yet, like my old friends, 
They would not come. They were not interested. So why? Why might that be? Well, our parable tells us, first of all, that for some, they're just too busy. They're just too busy. If you go back to the very beginning of the parable, you look at verse 2, it says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Notice, these are people that had already been invited, and we can safely assume had RSVP'd or whatever the equivalent of doing such things was in ancient Israel, they had told the king, save me a plague. And just like today, if somebody tells you that they're going to be there, it costs you money to make sure you have enough food to feed them. The king did that. But they would not come. Nevertheless, the king was not dissuaded again. He sent servants out to him. He sent more. Hey, no, no, no. Guys, it's time. Come. Come on. Let's go to the wedding. Come on. It's really ready now. Come on. Let's go. No. Not interested. This picture of God sending servants out multiple, multiple times to, to compel people to come in is so in line with the rest of Scripture's picture of God stretching out his hand as Isaiah says, to a stiff-necked and obstinate people, stretching out his hand that they would come, and them refusingly batting the hand away. Batting the hand away. And what do we find out is the reason? Well, verse 5 tells us. I got a farm to go to. I got a business to take care of. I'm sorry, I just don't have time to take out of my busy schedule to attend a multi-day feast, because that was the way weddings were back then. It was multiple days that you were expected to be a part of. They're just too busy. Who's got time to spend it with God? Things aren't that different today. If anything, they tend to be worse. The world's richest man, Carlos Slim, a while back, predicted and it wasn't that long ago, just a little while ago, that soon the average work week for all of us human beings would be no more than three days a week. Indeed, futurists have been saying the same thing since the 60s. I mean, I, I don't know how you get the job title of futurist, but apparently those who had such job titles back then were saying our biggest problem by this time, 2020, was human beings not knowing what to do not knowing how to keep themselves active or busy because technology was supposed to advance in such a way that we'd basically just be sitting around and robots would be feeding us bonbons whenever we wanted. But of course, that's not happened at all. I mean, we got a glimpse of what it's like to not be busy here for a little bit at the beginning of sort of this lockdown period. Some of us did, not all of us. Some of us were essential workers. Some of us just went more extreme online, you know, and... But some of us did, and frankly, <laughs> a good number of people kind of freaked out because they didn't know how to live life without being busy all the time, without running, 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 running. It's sort of something we wear with a badge of honor. You've heard it before. How's it going, man? Oh, crazy busy, super busy, 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 busy. So, Blaise Pascal, the 17th century 
Catholic philosopher once said, one of my favorite quotes, quote, I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. What's he getting to there? Well, Peter Kreeft, philosopher and scholar, commenting on it says, we ought to have much more time, more leisure than our ancestors did because technology, which is the most obvious and radical difference between our, their lives and ours, is essentially a series of time-saving devices. So why have we killed time instead of saving it? Here's Craig's answer. We want to complexify our lives. We don't have to. We want to. We want to be harried and hassled and busy. Unconsciously, we want the very things we complain about. For if we had leisure, and here's what I think Blaise Pascal was really getting to, if we had leisure, we would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and see the great gaping hole in our hearts and be terrified because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. It is not an accident that it's so easy for us in times of difficulty or hardship look for the first distraction we can find. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's just social media, just, just like scrolling endlessly. But we'll find it. Because it's actually really hard to just be still and not be busy. And so the same reasons that the religious establishment gave for not showing up, that the king's subjects gave for not showing up to the wedding feast, can easily be the same reasons that we don't too. We just get too busy. But there's a deeper reason still that is quite simple for why these people don't show up to the feast or don't want anything to do with the feast. And that is... They don't like the king. I mean, listen to what some of those who were invited to the party do. I mean, they, they take some of the servants who are just telling them, hey, come on over to the feast that's free for you. It'll be great. And what's their response? They beat them and kill them? Like, I mean, talk about killing the messenger, literally. They beat them and kill them. You know, there are some higher critical Bible scholars that don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, you know, but nonetheless, they're reputable scholars that will say this part of the parable is so out of place, so absurd, so crazy, so irrational, that it was probably added later by a monk, that it couldn't have been in the original because it just doesn't fit. I mean, it's one thing for people to say, I'm too busy. It's another thing for them to then add, like, and now I'm going to beat you to death and bludgeon you to death because you even invited me. That's exactly what has happened. I don't think this was added later. I think this displays, in fact, the absurdity of humanity in their relationship to God. Again, God outstretches his arms. I've got abundance for you. I've got a feast for you. I want to wipe all tears away from your faces, Isaiah said earlier. I'm here for you. I love you. I am your father. And over and over again, the response of God's people in the Old Testament was, get out of here, prophet. I'll kill you, prophet. They did the same thing to Jesus' apostles. They did the same thing to the witnesses of Jesus Christ all around the world still today. 
And they did the same thing to Jesus, the son himself. <coughs> it is very, very much a fact that part of the motivation for people rejecting the feast that's offered to them is they just don't, they resent that there even is a God over them. They want to be in control. And the very idea that there's a God threatens that. And so the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, giving one of the more terribly low opinions, and really not an opinion because it's Scripture, low statements about humanity, says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Good gracious, Paul. I mean, the man is killing it with the absolute statements. He lives no wiggle room. Look it up in the Greek. No one means no persons. All means all the persons. I mean, he doesn't leave anybody out. It's scathing. His point is that humanity, naturally, when God reaches out to them and says, I want you, says, I don't want you, stay away. I'm fine on my own. And why is it that humanity resents God, doesn't like God naturally. I'm not saying this is true for those who have come to Christ, although because you're a sinner and a saint at the same time, that's always going to be there too. But really the reason at bottom, you get to the base of it, it's because of pride. By this time in the parable, the king has decided to move on. He knows that this group is just not going to come. And he does something that's pretty striking. I mean, really, it's kind of, again, it seems crazy. He's so insistent on filling his wedding hall that he sends his servants out to the main roads to complete strangers, to complete outcasts, and says, compel them to come in. Bring them in at all costs. And it even adds, whether they're good or bad, doesn't matter to me. I want everybody, just, I want the wedding hall filled. Doesn't matter who it is. I'm not letting this food go to waste. I'm not letting this feast be empty. Now, of course, we know in sort of the big biblical storyline, this is picturing God deciding to go after the Gentiles and the tax collectors and the sinners and, and the outcasts. But just imagine yourself being in the story. It's hard to fathom a more inviting, gracious king for nothing on the part of his guests. He lavishes complete strangers with this feast of all feasts. All are invited to partake. And the only requirement the king has is that they be dressed properly for the occasion. Now, seeing as his guests were virtually taken off the streets and hurriedly placed into the wedding hall, in my mind, it is most likely that the king would have gone around and given each of the guests that were invited the apparel for the wedding. I think he would have provided it. All they had to do was simply accept the clothing and put it on. That's it. Well, the king went around greeting his guests, and what do you know? He finds one person, one person who just refused to put on the proper attire. What was this guy thinking? Well, 
at the very least, he must have been thinking that the clothes he had on were just fine enough, thank you. Apparently, he was thinking he didn't have to come into the king's house covered in the way that the king said. He thought he could go to the king's feast with his own clothes. He was too proud to admit he needed different clothes to stay at that feast. You probably are connecting the dots already with what's going on here. In the same way, the Bible tells us that in order to know God and be known by God, we must have proper attire. We must have proper clothing. In fact, we must be clothed in righteousness, clothed in righteousness in such a way that no imperfection would ever seep out. We must be able to stand before God in this attire in such a way that anything we've done before and anything we'll do after will not be seen, will not be revealed. We must be entirely covered in the right attire for this feast. And of course, the scriptures tell us that God has provided clothing for us as well. And that clothing is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That clothing indeed covers all sin, past, present, future. It covers all flaws, all failures. And where is that clothing given to us? The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3.27, For all who are baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. All one must receive is the proper clothing. And they can stay at the feast with God. And what holds them back? At bottom, it's pride. It's simply the pride of believing in the final analysis that you don't really need God or what he has to offer. You'll get by just fine on your own. The famous poem Invictus, which many a politician has quoted over the years, spells out well what this sort of pride, I think, sounds like. Quote, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. And here's the famous line. I am the master of my fate. The captain of my soul. Benjamin Franklin was a conflicted man, but was at least fond of the idea of living a virtuous life. And yet in his late writings, he talked about one virtue that he had the hardest time cultivating, and that was the virtue of humility. He wrote, quote, there is perhaps no one of natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive and will every now and then peep out and show itself. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. End quote. Ditto. 
Me too. I know it's there. I know it's there. So even as I can, we can look at this group of people that had so much pride that they would be unwilling to receive the clothes of Christ that were given, I know I've got that same thing that can creep up in me. Or to put it in more modern terms, the well-known former wide receiver, star wide receiver Terrell Owens once said, I love me some me. I love me some me. So in the final analysis, what happens? If you show up to the throne of God, if you show up to the feast of God, saying, I love me some me, I'm the captain of my soul, I've got this, I can do it myself, my clothes are just fine, thank you. Well, don't be surprised when he says, you're not fit to stay here. That's what he does with the man who refuses the proper clothing. But it, it's not this way for you. It's not this way for me. And it doesn't have to be this way for anybody else. Because the good news for all of us is that though I have often been far too busy for God, which my wife still regularly reminds me of, like, hey, dummy, stop to pray before you go out and serve the Lord. Why do I not do it? I have things to do. Too busy. And though I have often rejected his pleas to come, and though we all have tried getting by in our own proud, filthy rags, he still comes day after day with the same invitation. The king has not decided to bring judgment down on us, but instead says, come to the feast that is prepared for you. Come to the feast that is prepared for you. Come, there is forgiveness. Come, I've got righteousness for you. Come, humble yourself and accept the clothing that I have. Come. It's free for the taking. Now enjoy the feast. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we are all given a spot at the table of the Lord. That it's not dependent on our worthiness, our goodness, our right standing in the world, our success. No, it's dependent upon your desire to fill your wedding hall. And because this world still is ticking away, we know that you're not done filling it. And so, Father, we're thankful as we prepare to gather around the feast that you have given us now, this preview of the great feast to come. Prepare our hearts to receive what matters most here, the body and blood of Christ, who taught us to pray with one voice, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us.
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.